All right, so we're, so we're going to start a new series this morning. This is going to be a series over the next four weeks. We're going to go through the Lord's Prayer. Or actually, probably a better descriptor of it is uh, Pastor Michael in Ocala calls it the Disciples' Prayer. Which I thought is actually a good point because the Lord's Prayer is in John 17 where the Lord Jesus is praying for his disciples, um, for those that would come to faith through their preaching, which includes us. Um, the Lord's Prayer, I feel like, is, a, is probably a better, a better description of, of that chapter. Um, and so it, it is often, I think, I don't think Pastor Michael is the first one to call it that, but the, but the Disciples' Prayer. Um, so let, let's go ahead and read the, um, the section we're going to be studying, starting at Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up in verse 5. Jesus is teaching. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of that. Uh, it's, you know, he, Jesus is up on the mountainside. He sits down. The crowds have come to him and he's just teaching. And he teaches a little bit on a wide variety of different, um, different topics. Um, Matthew, all of chapter 5, chapter 6, and basically all of chapter 7 is all the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is, this is, it's important to understand that this teaching is couched um, inside a larger, a larger teaching. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father who knows what you need before you ask, for, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is a this is a a, um, a passage we're gonna we're gonna probably just read the whole passage every week. Um, we should have done it this week, but. Um, in the coming weeks, we'll, we'll recite the Lord's Prayer together, the Disciples' Prayer, um, whatever we want to call it. Um, I think it's it's one of, in our kind of branch of Christianity, I think often we we kind of, we tend to, I think, kind of shy away from the, I, I don't know. I, I, I know that the, the Lord's Prayer traditionally in, in some churches, I know in, in Catholic churches and, and, and other more, more liturgical churches, that might be something that is, that is uh, recited on a regular basis, and we often don't do that sort of thing, so it's a, it's a little different for us. Um, then again, a lot of the liturgy stuff we've been doing is a little different for us too. But, but um, 
I don't know. I, I think sometimes we can forget that um, that a, a traditional prayer like that is actually in Scripture. <laughs> it's okay to pray that one. Um, but I want to go through. I, I want to go through the first portion of this passage, verses five through nine this morning, or five through eight, and um, and look at a, at, a, at just a few things. First of all, the very first phrase he says. He says, and when you pray, pause. He doesn't say if you pray. He doesn't say, you know, when someone prays. He says, and when you pray. It is relevant, I think, to me that our Lord Jesus assumes that those who follow him will pray to him. That we will, um, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna, I guess we should have sung this song first, but we're, we're gonna, we're singing What a Friend We Have in Jesus, um, at, at the end. And one of the, you know, take it, take it to the Lord in prayer. Now that hymn hadn't been written yet, but scripture had been written that says, cast all of your cares upon him, for he cares for you. If we, if we really understand the relationship between God the Father and we, His children, His adopted children as, as believers, then we will understand that as, as a loving Father, He wants us to pray to Him. He wants us to communicate with Him. He wants us to share our, our needs, our desires, our struggles, our burdens. There's an assumption by Jesus that we will pray. Look at look at the Lord Jesus, who in his in his ministry, he he went through, he endured temptation, he endured difficulty, he endured struggles in this life, and and yet never sinned, and yet he prayed constantly. He very often, frequently would would get up before the disciples and and head up uh, you know up away from them on the mountainside or wherever. There's many references in the Gospels of of Jesus getting up and going to uh, you know sometimes it would be called a desolate place. Uh, sometimes he would he was trying to get get somewhere where he could pray and the crowds just kind of followed him. Um, but but Jesus prayed a lot. Jesus' relationship with his Father is a great example of what our relationship with the Father ought to be. Even, even as, as, and it's, it's impossible for us to really wrap our head around Jesus is completely God and yet was also completely human. But when you read what I call the Lord's Prayer, the, the, the high priestly prayer in John 17, he's, he's pouring his heart out to God, the Father. And, and he's, He's asking. He knows he must go to the cross. And yet still he pours out his heart to the Father saying, if there's any other way, if this cup could pass from me. And it's, it's such an example to us of, of having that relationship where we just, I don't know, this is growing up in a house full of mostly young men. Well, it was boys, but we grew up into young men eventually, and now we're middle-aged men. But um, getting married, I had to learn a lot about um, about women, for instance. And one of those things that I've had to learn about you, Kara, is that sometimes, I'm still learning this, is that sometimes she just needs to 
tell me things. She doesn't need a solution. In fact, she already knows the solution, and it's the right one. But she just needs to say it. And she needs me to listen. And I think often, I don't, I don't know how you are in your prayer life, but I know that for me sometimes I can, I can neglect prayer because I know, well, I mean, you know, like I know what I need to do. Or God already knows. And so I kind of feel like, well, there's no, it's not really any point to praying. Well, Jesus, Jesus says, Jesus admonishes us to pray in this passage. And then the the last phrase here in verse 8, he says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Well, wait, if he already knows, then why do we need to pray? Because there is no substitute in a relationship for communication. Uh, One of my, a preacher I used to listen to a lot would, would say it this way. That he would say this often in, in the context of a marriage relationship, but that disclosure is the currency of intimacy. It, with the, the, the idea being that how close your relationship with somebody, the, the closeness of your relationship is going to be directly related to how much you're willing to open up and share with that person. You know, the more that you that you hold back from that person, the, the more barriers that there are between you and them. And so disclosure is the currency of intimacy. I thought that was kind of a um, poignant way to to describe that. But in our relationship with God, so if God already knows what we need before we ask him, why ask? Why, why even talk? Why pray? What's the point? Clearly, the benefit, clearly God does not need us to pray to Him. It's not, it's not that there's a, there's an unfulfilled need in, in God's life that we, He needs us to pray to Him so that He'll feel better, so God isn't too lonely up there in heaven. That, that's not, God needs nothing outside of Himself. And so we must then conclude that the need that is being fulfilled is in our own hearts. God knows that we have a need to communicate with our Heavenly Father, with our Creator. The benefit, really, is ours. We, if you've ever had a conversation where you, where you shared with somebody and, and just, maybe, maybe over a long period of time, maybe you talked for an hour and just got a lot of things off your chest, did you come away feeling better? Often you do because you think, man, I just, I just needed somebody to listen to me. I just need, I guess I just needed to say all that stuff. God knows that we need that. And he makes clear in scripture that his ear, the Bible says it this way, that his ear is inclined toward his people. You know, you think of someone, you know, leaning in to listen. God's ear is inclined toward us. All, all that, um, so much of that from just the phrase, when you pray. <clears throat> James chapter 5 and verse 16 is a, a verse that I found great comfort in because I knew, well, I'll read it for you. It says, he says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer 
of a righteous person, of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I found great comfort in that in, um, in my late teen years and early twenties as I, I, I knew that my grandfather, who's now with the Lord, prayed for me regularly. He was a, he was a great man. He was a pastor and church planter back before they called it church planting. Um, back then they just called it church starting. Um, but he was a, he was a great, a great, definitely fit the description of a righteous man. And knowing that he prayed for me and knowing that that verse is true. Um, I don't know. I just, that, that, but, but the Bible says that prayer, prayer is effective. Uh, you know, you, you see the, you see the, the, the kind of cliche pasted on things on, uh, you know, on Facebook and Pinteresty things or whatever, you know, that prayer changes things. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of theology to go into that, but I think, um, by itself that, that works. Um, not that we always get our way, but that, <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard, it's hard to, as you study that, do we have the ability to change God's mind? Can we change God's plan? Well, I would certainly say no on that. But at the same time, and this is one of those mysteries that as a, as, as a believer on this side of heaven, someday God may reveal this to us and we'll understand, but uh, you think back to Moses and the people in the wilderness. When he came down from the mountain with the law that God had just given them, and he goes down and Moses finds the people worshiping a golden calf that they made with gold that... God had basically given them. God got the Egyptians to literally pay them to leave. God provided for their needs in all of this way. And we just looked at that at that passage just you know last month. Moses comes down, finds them that way, goes back up the mountain to God, and God says, "I'm going to kill them. I'm just going to I'm just going to destroy these people." And Moses prays for the people. Moses intercedes is, is what we would call that. Moses, Moses goes before God and says, I know they are a stiff-necked, stiff-necked people, but, but for your glory, basically give them another chance. And God, God relents um, his wrath um, and, and, and doesn't destroy the people. And so could you say that Moses' prayer changed things? Well, I, can't, I don't know the I don't know the mind of God. His ways are higher than ours. But certainly, there is there is something about prayer that does things. Or otherwise, James would not have written the effectual fervent prayer, as King James says it. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Or no, availeth much. Availeth much. That's the King James. I knew that didn't sound very old English. Um, So, let's move on to another phrase here. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now, he's, he's gonna give us the, you know, the disciples prayer, our Father, our, you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's gonna, he's gonna give us when you pray, pray like this. But first, he gives us, don't pray like this. It, it kind of, it, we see this at other places in scripture where he, he almost first has to describe what it is not before he can explain what it is. 
When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now, this is a very thinly veiled reference to the Pharisees um, that he's talking about. There, they were always there was always some Pharisees in the crowd, and Jesus really liked to jab at them. And early in his ministry, it would be thinly veiled like this. He'd say the hypocrites, and then later in his ministry, he would just call them out. Um, <clears throat> but the word hypocrite is a is a is a word that we get from from the Greek language. And it is, in Greek, they would have understood this not the way we understand it today. I mean, it's the same idea, but, but the word hypocrite basically meant actor. A stage actor. And, and back then, um, they didn't have movies and stuff like that. And, uh, often the cast for their plays and stuff would be, um, would be much smaller. And so to display the different characters, they would have different masks. And so when, when, when they had a, a mask on pretending to be a certain character, that was, it was a hypocrite. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't, okay, it, it, it clearly, it, it was, it was somewhat, like now it is only an insulting term. Or not insulting, but you know, it, it, now it is own, it is almost exclusively a term that refers to someone's character pretending to be one way when really they're a different way on the inside. Um, Back then, they would have that picture would have been so clear, and you can see you can see why that word has come to mean that. Um, <clears throat> clearly, it, it already meant that when Jesus was was here talking. But hypocrites, it's important for us to. I think that imagery is so powerful. A hypocrite is 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 putting on one face when in reality their heart attitude is not what they're projecting. We all do this. We all do this sometimes. It, you know, sometimes it can be the, well, it's Sunday, let's put our church faces on and go and, you know, see our church people and pretend like everything's fine when in reality we're, you know, whatever might be going on. We might be really, really struggling with this. We might be really upset about this or that, but you know, we come to church and pretend like everything's fine. That's, that's hypocrisy. And we should, we should stand against that. But but he describes them here. He says, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners and um, that they may be seen by others. Turn in your Bibles with with me really quickly. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter six and turn over to Luke uh, chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 and starting in verse nine. There's a great example. This is also Jesus teaching, and, and, and he's, he's teaching about the exact same thing. He says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus speaking here, he says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Okay, this is important to give some context. The Pharisees, until Jesus came and shook things up, like now we we, we understand the Pharisees to be like hypocrites, um, basically. It, in fact, the, the word Pharisee now is almost synonymous with the word hypocrite. You need to understand that in the first century, when Jesus is teaching here, the Pharisees were highly regarded and respected in Jewish society. These were the religious elites 
These were the ones that, now understand that it was also, it was almost like a political party as well because their, their religion and their, and their state government were kind of, they were tied together. I mean, the book of Deuteronomy, and if you don't, if you don't know this, the book of Deuteronomy is the Israeli constitution, maybe not, not today, but like in the establishment of the, of the Hebrew nation, that's their law. And so their religion and their law are inextricably linked. Those two are, are tied together in a way that, um, so, so anyway, so, so the Pharisees are, are both, they're both community leaders on the government level, but they're also religious leaders in their churches, in their synagogues. The Pharisees were very highly respected in their, in the culture at that time. And so Jesus is, when Jesus is tearing down the Pharisees in his teaching, and exposing their hypocrisy. This was kind of earth-shattering in their culture. This was like a big deal. You didn't talk bad about the Pharisees before Jesus. But the thing is, anybody who was around them very much, even though you couldn't speak out against them, you knew. Everybody deep down kind of knew, okay, they're not really like this. So he says, so the, the Pharisees were highly respected and the tax collectors were exactly the opposite. A tax collector in Jewish, Jewish society, you need to understand first century, first century Israel, you have the Jewish people, but they are occupied by Rome. The Roman Empire is, is ruling Israel as a, as one of its territories. It was a strategic place because you had to go through Israel if you were going by land around the Mediterranean Sea to Egypt. You had to go through it. So it was a, it was a strategic strip of land to control. Uh, it was also, anyway, but, but, but one of the things, if you were a Roman territory, guess what you had to do? Pay taxes to Caesar. And so the tax collector was not like the Polk County tax collector's office, you know, that we just, we pay our taxes. We should, right? That, that's not that's not what it was. The tax collector in first century society worked for the enemy. In the Jewish mind, obviously, the, the, the Romans are the enemies. They are occupying us. They are laying claim to this land that God said would be ours. And a tax collector worked for Rome. A tax collector also would not... The reason why it was like a, you know attractive to be a tax collector to those that, that did it was because people had to pay you whatever you told them they had to pay. You didn't know what the tax rate was. They didn't give you, you know, all like the forms. There was no turbo tax back then where you could fill it out on your own. You would say, you'd go see the tax collector and he'd tell you what you had to pay and you had to pay it. He'd usually have some Roman soldiers with him too that would, you know, you couldn't argue with him. You had to pay it. And so what tax collectors would do would say, oh, you owe, let's see, he owes a hundred bucks. Okay, you owe me 250 bucks. And he'd pocket the other 150. I mean, sometimes they would, they would cheat him out more than double. But they would, they would tack on extra to what everybody owed and just pocket the rest of it. And that's why it was a, a very lucrative business to be in. But tax collectors were reviled. Pharisees respected. Tax collectors absolutely hated in Jewish society. Interesting. Matthew, in the book we're in, tax collector. And so he, so understand, these two, these could not be more different. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. 
God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a a powerful picture of... It says it was a parable, but he could very well have been describing a scene that that was right in front of him. There is a kind of prayer that is not... It's not really even to God. It pretends to be a prayer to God, but really it's a show for the people around. And that's exactly what Jesus is referring to here in in verse 5. He says, Do not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Can you imagine that? Like that was normal. A Pharisee, like on the street corner, people around, and he just starts praying and these, you know, using all these big words and talking about how great he is and, you know, praying to God and, and, you know, so that people around, wow, what a spiritual person. But what does Jesus say? He says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. You see, there's, there's something Jesus is very concerned about. God really cares in our prayer. God cares about the attitude of our hearts in a huge way. Way more than the words that come out of our mouths. He cares about the attitude of our hearts. And that passage that we looked, to, looked at in, in Luke, I think, draws, draws a great picture of it. But, but prayer is between us and God. Now, sometimes in church, we'll, we have corporate prayer. That's often what our prayer of confession is. You know, our prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of adoration to God. You know, these are, these are corporate prayers. This is, the, this is kind of a normal thing that we would do in church. It's normal that they would do in the synagogue. But, he, but that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about corporate prayer that's intended to kind of, as a group, we are, we are going to the Lord in prayer together. He's talking about individual prayer. He's in a heart attitude that is really more concerned about the people around and what they think of me. I don't know. Like, have you ever known? I can almost guarantee you've known pastors like this. I hope you wouldn't describe me like this, but you know, people that like they pray and like everything changes. It's a totally different voice. They use words that they would never use in normal normal speech. It's kind of like. It just kind of feels a little bit like a show or feels a little bit like a, oh, what was it? Holding up the mask, like, okay, I gotta put my prayer mask on. Dear Lord, we just, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun of like how people pray. That's not my, not my intent. God cares deeply about our heart attitude when we enter into prayer. And an attitude that is more concerned about what the people around me think is not an attitude um, of, of real prayer. Because he says here, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. 
So the Pharisee that stands on the street corner and prays in all these eloquent words and comes away with the people that were standing around respecting him even more. That's it. That's your reward. You've gotten it. Because in reality, that prayer was for those people to hear anyway. It wasn't really for God. It was for them. And you got their respect and, and their, that's, that's your reward. That's it. That, that's, that's, God knows that prayer isn't really for me. That prayer is for the people standing around. And then we see the, the other person who, who is, who says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I love how it says he, the, the, the tax collector standing afar off, away from where the other people were, says he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He didn't even, he understood his sin, made it so that God, he shouldn't, there's a big gap between God's holiness and his sin. And the tax collector could see that and responded to his sin appropriately. It says, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who's in secret. He goes, he goes on and describes, you know, as the Gentiles, uh, he says, heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. This is talking, uh, most, most likely, uh, this, this may be, um, prayer to, to God. It, it may be pagan, pagan ritual kind of prayer. If you, if you look back in the Old Testament to, um, Elijah and the, uh, you know, the whole thing with all the priests on the, you know, and, and like there was all the altars and stuff and like the, the priests of Baal were trying to get Baal's attention. And there was this, there was this thought, especially among pagan worshippers, that like, well, you know, if you just say more and more and more stuff, they'll, they'll hear you and, and listen more. The more you say, the more maybe they'll listen. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Do not heap up empty phrases. Don't just pile on more and more. Well, a prayer should be about this long, so I guess I'll, I'll think of some more things to pray about before I say amen. So don't do that. Your father, knows what you need before you ask him. He sees in secret. It says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will, re- will reward you. Um, you don't have to turn there, but Daniel chapter 6 records a very familiar story um, where uh, Daniel... Um, gets thrown into the lion's den. Now, do you remember why he gets thrown into the lion's den? Do you remember why? He wouldn't conform. That's right. But it was because of his prayer life. He prayed to the God of heaven. He, he prayed to Jehovah God. But you know what? Daniel was in exile. Daniel didn't live in Israel. Well, not not after he was a very young boy. Daniel was carted off to to Assyria, um, ba- Babylon, where he was, you know, raised up and kind of assimilated into that society. Um, Daniel was that then Babylon got taken over by the Medes and the Persians, and so you got King Darius, who's, who's in this story is now the king. Um, but you know, Daniel didn't. He wasn't like this public nonconformist figure, like leading the resistance against the government. Daniel worked in the government. Daniel, at times, was like the number two guy in the government. 
His relationship with God was real. Now, he didn't try to hide it. It wasn't like he, it wasn't like he was secretly worshiping God. He didn't make, you know, he didn't make a secret that when he interpreted someone's dream or came and interpreted something, he said, hey, listen, the meaning of this comes from the Lord. But the, the people who didn't like Daniel, who came in with the Medes and Persians, they, um, they sought to, it says here that in, in verse, um, uh, let's see, verse, well, let's just pick it up at the beginning. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. So this is kind of regional governors or whatever. And over them, three presidents, of whom Daniel was one of them, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. So you have the king, these three guys, and then like 120 governors. The king's number one. These three guys are like tied for number two. And Daniel's one of those guys. Okay, so th- that's, that's kind of setting up the envy for that position. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So now Daniel, one of those three, is going to be even in charge of those three. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So the, and then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And so, and so what do they do? They, they, they trick the king into, into uh, putting forth this edict that, you know, for, for 60 days or 30, however many days it was, um, no one, no one should make any petition to any god or man except the king. The king says, sure, that sounds great. I mean, he, he's not a believer at this point. Um, he doesn't worship God. Uh, he doesn't, you know, that, that sounds like a great deal. Uh, it, it's also relevant that they, they, like, King Darius and the Medes and the Persians had kind of recently taken over. And so, anyway, they're establishing themselves. And so, uh, so when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, in verse 10, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. That is an example of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 6. His relationship with God was the foundation of everything he did. His relationship with God, the fact that he followed God, is why he had the integrity to be such a great governor of this kingdom. Remember, he's not the resistance. He works for the government. And he's doing a great job. But it's because of his relationship with God. And so when, so then when the government, here you get like the civil disobedience thing, but like, you know, then when the government says, okay, here's the new, here's the new law, you can't pray to God. And Daniel's like, listen, that's, sorry, God's law trumps man's law, and I'm still gonna pray. But he didn't go and make some public thing about it. He went, like he always did, privately, in his house, in his room, with the door closed, Window open toward Jerusalem that, you know, not, that's not like something you had to do, but it was just something that he liked to do. And he prayed. Pray to your father who is in secret 
and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What what this communicates is that our prayer life, our relationship with God in prayer, is a private relationship. It doesn't mean that we should never pray in a group or in a group setting or things like that, but it does mean that primarily our prayers to God are between us and God. There's, there's not some, some, you know, formal, I mean, God, Jesus does give us kind of a uh, pray in this way and he gives us the, the disciples prayer here, but, um, It's not like, uh, you know, when you pray, make sure you're in a church and make sure it's Sunday and then, you, you know, the pastor will lead you and you can pray. No, he's saying pray to God privately. In, in, another, in another verse, we're told to pray without ceasing. In our minds, in the quiet of our, of our own minds, we can pray to God. There's a, there's a posture that we see here in the in the Daniel passage and in, in here where he says, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who's in secret. When you contrast that with the Pharisees, you know, that stand up and pray loudly and publicly so people would, would hear them. There's that. And then there's the posture that goes into a room and closes the door. And no one else is there and gets down on their hands and knees and prays. You know, so so often uh, we kind of just traditionally have taken on that you know we bow our heads when we pray, and and that's the, that's actually the idea, and that's kind of where where it comes from that our that our posture, our physical posture reflects a heart attitude toward God that says, I bow to you because you're greater than me, I'm not worthy to look upon you. But you've, but you have said I should bring my request to you. It's a, it's a respect, um, toward God and it's a, and it reminds us that, that I am the servant, you are the master. Um, it's a powerful thing. And, and it's, and it's in complete contrast to the Pharisees standing and praying loudly. Now again, that doesn't mean you can't stand up and pray. Um, but it is a reminder of that heart attitude reflecting that. There is um, there's so much here, and I'm excited to unpack the rest of uh, this these these over the next uh, three weeks. The disciples' prayer, um, and as we close this morning, I, I want us to to be reminded of what Jesus says here: Your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. We all love the idea of being able to take our, our list of things we want and things we think we need to an almighty God that can fulfill them. Similar to the way we might take our, our Christmas wish list to our wealthy grandparent that's probably going to get it all for us. We like that idea. But the reality with God is that He knows what we need before we ask Him and He knows what we need before we know what we need. And it's, it's so important to be reminded that chiefly what we all need most is to have our sins forgiven. There's no greater need that we have than that. 
And, and once, once our sins are forgiven through the blood of Christ, then there are other things that we need that God can provide. Only God can provide for us. But it's so important for us to remember that, that that need trumps all other needs. It's not about, it's not about taking our list and, here God, you can read my list. What, you know, why do I even need to say it? It's not, it's not about that. It is about sinners coming into the presence of a holy God. A holy God who is also our heavenly Father who loves us and asks us to pray. It's not too much to ask. And just like any father, sometimes he just wants to hear us talk to him. And, and who benefits? We do. When I come, when I come home after being at work all day and my, my girls greet me and they want to tell me, they want to tell me stories of, you know, the, what they did that day. Now, I may have already talked to Kara and already know what they did. I may already know this story. But I let them tell me anyway. And who benefits? Well, we kind of both do. But the girls learn something when I do that. They learn that their father loves them. Their father has time for them. And now I feel like I should do a better job of that. (laughs) But our Heavenly Father always does a good job of that. So let us not neglect to pray to Him. Um, And with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come before You and we... We're struck by how often we put on our hypocrite's mask even when we come to you in private. God, I pray that you would convict us of that. I pray that you would impress on our hearts the need for prayer. That you would help us to develop the the immediate response to pray when we feel a need when we understand our need, that we immediately take it to you. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you even want us to pray to you. I pray for each one here. And I pray for each one that's not here. We all have needs and struggles and temptations and uh, difficulties in our lives and needs. God, I pray that you would meet those in a very real way. But God, I pray that in doing so, you would use those needs to draw us closer to you. To remind us to pray. That we would develop that closer relationship with you that only comes through communicating to you through prayer. God, we love you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.